Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. This is the season two finale. Season three will be up soon, but I need time to create new episodes. And also, I'm in a busy season of teaching and choreography. I've got deadlines and there's some new adventures happening. I will keep you posted on everything. Today's guest is Roger Preston Smith. He's a veteran of Broadway national tours. He has done every kind of performing job that you can imagine. He's one of the sweetest, nicest people. Funny. Here's the interview. I really hope you enjoy it. So, Roger, I want to introduce you to my podcast audience because you are kind of an icon in show business. You're somebody that's been in the business, is it five decades now? Yes. (laughs) And everybody loves you. So give us just a few of the shows that you've been in. What are some of the favorite jobs that you've ever had? Are you talking about Broadway or everything? I mean, I've done dance companies. I did nightclub work. I did Disney on Parade. I did Broadway, Off-Broadway, you know. Let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in farmland, Ohio. (laughs) At six, I started taking tap with the PTA. They had 50 cent lessons. And eventually the teacher started pulling me into other things, including ballet, which she called acro. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And then eventually I started going to, I would travel downtown Cincinnati, which was about an hour away to take classes in his studio or else he had several studios around town and we I would go to them around different places my I had a very dear friend who was my dance partner and her mother had been a dancer and would take us to all these classes cuz and even though my parents never quite understood they never fought me and they were let me do what I wanted to do it's really important to have some support from your family but there's something magical about being a dancer, don't you think? Oh, I, there's kind of six degrees of separation from every dancer in the world. I've danced all over the world in probably eight or nine different countries. And I have friends from all of those places. Some of them I haven't seen in years, but we still have a magic bond that always still lasts. And Even if you don't see them, you run into somebody who knows them and that connection connects you with that connection, which connects, it it is just amazing. And that we have that special bond because I think we create that special bond in the classroom. From the first day you take class, you have, you feel a connection with everybody around you that I don't think people, not (laughs) dancers um, ever does that make sense? I agree with you. It makes sense 100% because I feel like you have to have your heart open to just stand there in class. And I teach online and a few of my students are older people who haven't danced before and they enjoy the anonymity of not having people watch them. But I think when you start younger and you are in the classroom, you're basically wearing hardly anything at all and your clothing is skin tight so there's a vulnerability 
about. It's like you're there. And then when you have a good teacher who is correcting you, you have to be willing to learn. And that is part of the whole experience. And then what you just said about being with people in shows and everything, it's like there's problem solving that's constantly happening on stage. And you're always supporting each other. Don't you agree? Oh, totally. Totally. I think that's why dancers can go into so many other fields after they finish. Some of us never finish. Like you said, the problem solving, the things you and the trust you have in your fellow performers, because there are times things happen and you have to improvise and totally change everything on right in the moment, in front of thousands of people. And hopefully it works out. (laughs) So Roger, when did you move to New York City? I moved to New York City in 1972, straight out of, uh, as soon as I graduated. Well, actually, right after I graduated, I got a job with a touring company called Disney on Parade, which was a huge arena show. We had 65 dancers. We traveled all over the country, Canada and Mexico. And then later, actually, I went to the Far East and Australia with them. Uh, it sounds, that sounds pretty wonderful. It really was an amazing because it was a very spectacular show. I think we had 17 trucks of costumes and sets. Anna White was the choreographer who got Ooh. the Academy Award for Oliver. The second show Tom Hansen, who did Mary Poppins. We did actual, like we did the real Mary Poppins choreography during the show. They did little mini sections of different shows, like Fantasia, Snow White, but we would do a lot of the original choreography. And that sounds we were doing fun. 12 to 14 to 16 shows a week. <laughs> but we loved it. I know I was just yesterday was my 30th anniversary for Atlantic City Chorus Line. 12 shows a week, two shows a night, six nights a week, full uncut chorus lines. And that company, we got so strong and we all went on to get Broadway shows and have careers. It was really a training ground. So that's what this was an incredible training ground. I, I learned so much about discipline. And when you have that many people, we had a pinwheel with 32 people. Talk about learning how to guide and to be exactly on your space every second. You knew the floor had patterns on it. You knew where you were on every step. So the audience could look down on these patterns and see everything exactly the way it was supposed to be. And we also had some circus acts. And the discipline I learned from those people was pretty amazing, too, because, you know, they believe the show goes on no matter what. And in fact, one of my best friends had been a clown and her she had been on the the circus with the Walendas when they had their major accident. When the pyramid fell, these were her friends and she and her husband had to go out and entertain while they cleaned the bodies off the stage. Oh my goodness. Quite that far with it. And I don't believe that. But when you just, when you learn from people like that, you get a discipline that is amazing, I think. What is the biggest contract you've ever had? What is the best, like, brightest jewel in your crown of performing? This wasn't performing, but probably one of the biggest crowns was serving as the assistant choreographer on the Patti LuPone Gypsies and working directly 
with Arthur Lawrence, like the final callback. I had never met Arthur Lawrence and the choreographer couldn't make it. And I had to go and run all the auditions with him. And uh, no pressure. No. (laughs) Wow. And our friend Bill Bateman was in that company. And I saw that. It was so good. In fact, because he couldn't audition and said, would you just please see him? And he walked in and Arthur, they had all these famous character men. And as I think he had one line and Arthur turned and said, finally, somebody that can actually act. (laughs) Well, Bill Bateman certainly can act. We love him. You and I have so many mutual friends in common. I just have always looked up to you. So many times I see you whizzing around New York City on your bicycle and I call out to you. But by the time my voice reaches, you're already long past. I've been walking a little more than I used to. And I find I see so many more people because that was a problem. I would zip by and never see people when I'm on my bike. But I love my bike. I love my I try to bike. And you ride pretty fast. And it scares me a little, too, because when city bikes came out, I thought about riding a city bike and something about riding a bike through traffic in Manhattan. Just I'm like, "Mm, I don't know if I can do it, but. You do it. Times Square, I see you all the time. Zippity-doo-dah. I tend to get go more on the uh, the pathway along the river more than... Yeah, I, yeah. I used to travel through the city a little more. Not on, There are too many crazy bikers and too many crazy pedestrians and too many crazy drivers. It makes me a little nervous now. Maybe it's just getting older. Yeah. But, and you're still dancing. You are still dancing. I take a ballet class six days a week on Zoom from a friend that I've known for about 45 years. Part of the time she's teaching at the Graham studio. She was a principal dancer with Martha Graham. And we came up under the same ballet teacher, Mr. Corvino, who founded the Juilliard's dance department, actually. So I take that and I've returned to stretching a half hour after every cl- every day. And I've returned to having splits on both sides and a straddle split with my chest on the floor. And I'm going to be... I 72. can't believe that. Wait, say that again. You're going to be what? 72 in May. I remember your 50th birthday. I remember that. <laughs> I had just come off tour And everyone was celebrating Rogers turning 50 and now you're 72. So that's how long we've been friends. Yeah. How did did it happen? But you know what? Isn't it crazy? I'm not complaining because I'm still here and so many of my friends never made it. So, uh. yeah, we have a lot to be thankful for. And I just want to talk about your last job before the pandemic, because you had booked this amazing position and then it got cut short. But luckily, you were able to get home. So do you want to talk about what that job was right before the pandemic? Sure. It wasn't a real, it was dancing, but I was working as a dance host to dance with the single ladies on around the world cruise. They had usually had like professional ballroom dancers, but they had changed because they were demanding. They were too demanding. And I had gone, I worked at the Lido in Paris. I don't know if you know what yes, that is. The night. I do, yeah. And I had worked back there in the 70s. We had had a reunion for the 75th anniversary of the club. And dancers from all over the world came in. There were about 275 dancers who had worked there over the years and had this amazing 
week in Paris and went to the Lido and went to the Moulin Rouge, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I got home. We had had a Facebook page to connect us. And one of the girls from was working for a cruise line and asked, the boys, the women were called Bluebells. The boys were called Kelly boys because Miss Bluebell's maiden name was Margaret Kelly. So the boys were Kelly boys. And she said, would any Kelly boys like to work as a dance host on a round-the-world cruise? And I'm addicted to travel. And I went, give me information. And two weeks later, I was on my way to Rome, which is where it started. It was a European cruise. So most of the people were European. There were only about 10 Americans on the board, but every other nationality. Everything on board was, there were five languages listed for every announcement. <laughs> so I love that. Anyway, it started, I was supposed to dance. It was just more, you would get a little stipend and this round the world cruise. Well, by the end, it was supposed to be a couple hours a night. By the end, I was dancing anywhere from eight to 10 hours a day. That wow. Wow including all these dance classes that I would have to go and partner uh, these things. I mean, so anyway, we went all the way. We went out through the Mediterranean, stopped at like four or five cities in Europe, and then went out to Madeira Island and an island off the coast of Africa, circled all of South America, came back up. We stopped about eight places in South America came out through the South Pacific, stopping at Easter Island, Pitcairn, Rorotonga, Tahiti, many, and New Zealand, went through several places in New Zealand. And finally, in Tasmania, I had been reading about what was going on. And we were heading right into where all the trouble with COVID was. Luckily, we had right. done that of it. We got to Tasmania and they wouldn't let us off because they said there was two cases in Tasmania and couldn't chance us bringing it back on board. Well, from there, we were going to India and Singapore and places that were full of it. And I went, if we're not getting off here, because Tasmania is like the size of Ohio and has two cases, I'm not getting off anywhere else. And I Basically, I went up to them and said, then if I don't get back on, can I get off? And they said, yes. So I had 40 minutes to pack three and a half months of stuff. And I jumped ship, luckily, because the next day the ship shut down and they sailed for six weeks with no stops and eventually ended up back in on Marseille. And they bust everybody home. Of course, you couldn't bust me home to the United States. So I don't know what would have happened. If I had stayed. So your inner voice, your inner intuition said it's time to go and you trusted yourself and you left. Yes. I'm really glad they or let I you off the ship. At first, but then they all said to me, you were, the, you were the one that was smart. You were the smart one. <laughs> but I have been following news and I, that's one thing I'm always following. So I was hearing and I think a lot of these people had no idea. And the day I jumped was March 14th in Tasmania which was March 15th here, which was the day the city shut down. Yep, yep. And at that time, I was going to stay in Australia. And I have lots of friends because I worked over there years ago and visit with friends over there. And the day, and I thought, oh, because then we were talking about just being a couple weeks shut down, remember? (laughs) I do, yeah, I do. And so 
And the next day, my friend, I had had a friend that had met me in Tasmania. I'd gone back to their house in Melbourne. And she came in the next day and said, Qantas is shutting down 90% of their flights at the end of this week. So if you want to get out, you better. She goes, you're welcome to stay. But I jumped on a flight the next day and got home just in time. So, yeah, I'm really happy. I remember that. I can't believe it's almost two years ago that it happened. But I remember I kept praying, like, please let Roger get back into Manhattan safely because people were getting locked out. My friend Amy was on a European cruise in the German area, and she was on her ship for 53 days. No, no, that's what I read these stories of people. And I just go, I am so glad. And like, as I said, I I did something like they didn't realize when I got off that I was working. They just thought I was a passenger saying I won off because they threatened me with lawsuits and everything. But of course, the next day they shut down and then they were good and they even paid me. So but that's good. Yeah, I would I I really that was one very smart decision I made. <laughs> wow. Wow. Because well, they would have been the working me extra hard during that time, trying to keep everybody entertained. At least when right. we were traveling, I had all those days were completely free for me. I was in passenger status, so I could get off right away. I didn't have to do any kind of safety maneuvers or any of that. So I would just get off first thing in the morning and would become running back as a horn was honking as they were leaving. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think you've had this wonderful life and there's so much. One podcast is not going to do it. What Have you ever thought about writing a book? I have thought about it. I I have several friends that have encouraged me, including Bill Bateman, because my career is so diverse, you know, that I didn't really start in the, uh, doing Broadway till I was 30 and ended up yeah. doing shows. But I mean, I had, like I said, operetta, opera, dance companies, nightclubs. So there's there was a-, a lot of work too. There was a lot of different kinds of work when you were in your 20s and 30s. And I think that, I think the world has changed a lot, but I think that you hit it. Live performing really had so much, just in terms of all the different kinds of work. And yeah. when I was auditioning in the 90s, there was a lot of auditions what was it like in the 80s and 70s when you, like, where did you find your auditions? On in backstage in show business, which yeah. doesn't exist anymore. But yeah, right. you'd, you'd be doing several in a day. Exactly. You know, and like my European stuff, well, I went over there. I went to Australia with Disney on parade. And then my friend, we were in between we were having a layoff between the Far East tour and Australia. And we were just looking to make some extra money. And I, a friend went for an audition for the Bluebells and I, he wanted me to go. And I said, I'm not really interested. I want to stay here. And he said, just come and keep me company. And two days later, they said, do you want to go to Paris? And I had always dreamed of living in Paris. And two days later, I was on a flight to Paris. <laughs> that is my favorite thing about show business is how in a minute your life changes. And sometimes the dreams that you have line up with the jobs that you get. That's my favorite part about it is you're, you say, oh, I feel like going to Europe. And then all of a sudden 
you audition for something and you're you're there. That's the best. You know, you can get so depressed about this job. Oh, I wanted that job so badly and it falls through. But almost every time that has fallen through, another door that was even better opened for me. And absolutely that I would have never had. And which a, a job, I turned down a job once for what I thought was going to be a six week job. I turned down a national tour of Evita because I had done several already. And I was doing an Andy Get Your Gun at Houston Grand Opera for six weeks. Well, that led to a national tour, which led to me meeting Bill Bateman, which led me to getting Hello Dolly national tour and Broadway. And the Andy Get Your Gun was Kathy Rigby, which led me again to another Peter Pan with her which led to me getting the gypsy robe. It's called the legacy robe, but I got it. It was called the gypsy robe. So out of that one six-week job, all those jobs cascaded into each other. I always try to tell kids, because I remember even back then, people would say, oh, you can't go away. I'm waiting here to get on Broadway. You're always on the road. You're always going away. But those going away and those jobs on the road were where I got the connections and where I met the people that knew my work ethic that ended up leading to the Broadway and the other national tours. And I would come back years later and they'd still be working at the same restaurant and I had done five jobs. I always say get out and do as much as you can. Uh, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. I think that opportunity creates opportunity. Exactly. I want to ask you, was there anything that you personally had to sacrifice for this career? Probably personal relationships. It's hard. I agree. It's, it's hard when you love something as much as we do. It kind of takes priority. Well, it always took priority of, you know, I could be, I would be in a relationship and then something came from the road and it was like, sorry, that's where I have to go. And yeah, sometimes that road would be two years or, you know, but I'm not playing, oh, woe is me. I'm, I could be very happy with myself now. I've learned how, in fact, sometimes when I go out for the night with friends, I can't wait to get back to my apartment and close the door and be with myself. <laughs> yeah, just all snuggled up in your pajamas. Uh-huh. I understand. I totally understand. Um, I really would love it if you would start writing a book just because I always enjoyed when we worked together at the Walnut Street. I just loved hearing your stories about the little things, you know, just the little stories. There's always rehearsals. There's always the shows. But then there are just those little tiny moments where we just laugh and laugh. And those are my absolute favorite. The moments are the best. Those are the things that sometimes other people don't even remember. But I have such crystal clear memory of certain things that happened and that we did. If I ever do, I have the title. <laughs> you want to... What is it? What is well, it? in Disney on Parade, we dressed on one side of the arena. So you had a long walk to the other side. To, you entered from the opposite side. And so the last call was 10 minutes and instead of places. And there was a pre-show where Goofy would sweep up 
a um, spotlight, you know, the clown with sweeping up the spotlight. Yeah. He would do it. So our last call was 10 minutes to Goofy. So I that's would be the title of my book because it's sort of the title of my life, 10 minutes to Goofy. <laughs> that's a wonderful title. Oh, and then I thought it. I think now I'll now I can add 10 minutes to Goofy or I jump ship in Tasmania. <laughs> that's fantastic. And that's kind of bookends you know right and officially retired but yet if shows come along you still take them and i just want to explain to the listeners why it's so important to join the union because all of your work that you did as a union member the employers contributed to your pension which you are now enjoying rightfully so there's a lot of union busting happening in the united states right now and i feel like as a performer, it's really important to get your union benefits, including your health benefits and your pension. What do you think about that? Oh, I am totally in favor. I agree with that. I am now making more money than I continuously than I probably ever made in my life. I know I made more doing maybe certain shows, but they always ended and I was always scavenging to save for the next job, save for the next job. And to have, a, you know, but I, I was lucky I had a very fruitful career. So I have quite a nice pension. And to get that every month that I can live on that and I've got a good savings in my social security, but I can basically live on my pension better than I ever did before because I was always saving. And I do things now that I never did before because I'm not afraid. Because I know it's going to come, it's going to come to me as long as I live. And I want, I want to stress that to our young listeners, that there's going to be people that are going to say, "Oh, don't join the union," and you want to know why? Because they don't want to pay. They don't want to pay you what you should be paid, and they don't want to pay into your pension and health. So and to this, I, they can do whatever they want to you. Um, right. Right. I didn't even think about that, but that's right. In in our union, our Actors' Equity and our Screen Actors' Guild, there are rules about travel, and they're not excessive. They're rules about rehearsal. They're about creating safety in the workplace. And it was created because back in the old days, people used to take other take people out on tour and then just leave them there. They would run off with the money or run out of money and say, sorry, kids, I can't get you home. And by the way, the last four weeks, I'm not paying you. And you didn't even get paid for rehearsal. So you could rehearse for months and then a show would open and it closed and you had no money whatsoever. And, at, you know, non-equity people go, oh, but they're paying me OK, but they're only paying you OK because they have to come up somewhat towards what the union is paying. Otherwise, they don't get anybody. Yeah. It's because of those unions that those people, if it wasn't for unions, they would just say, because there's always somebody out there that would do it for nothing. Yeah, there is. And I just, I really want to, I want to do some more work for Actors' Equity this year in terms of getting ourselves on a strong footing. Because especially with the pandemic, it's kind of become the Wild West. Everybody, there's a desperation and I just feel like together we are stronger than alone. 
Yeah. So that's my little union commercial soapbox. <laughs> and and Roger, Roger's living testament that he worked his whole life. And guess what? I'm so happy for you that you get that pension because guess what? You earned it. And now you can live and you don't have to worry. You know, I, I look around in New York City at some of the population and I'm like, I don't know how they're living here in Manhattan. It's I just don't know. But, but I'm happy that you are able to have your apartment and you're able to do what you want. Did you ever think about leaving New York? No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> do you know Carol Schuberg? Glamorous. I always each, looked up to her. We call each other lifers. Yeah, she is. She is. So many people, I, I you know, I got, people go, oh, you're not going to be one of those old people that, you know, is on the streets in New York. And I go, I, I, why? Where would I go? Um, I can't. I I love the diversity. I love the arts. I love the theater. I love, you know, it drives me crazy. But I can't imagine going out in the hinterlands. I ran away from the farmland, and also there you're. You have to have a car. I mean, my mother once she couldn't drive was a prisoner in her home. I live right here in Times Square. I can walk to the grocery. I can walk to get something to eat. Even when I'm, you know, I, there are people in my building that were into their 90s and would still go out every day. You can do things or you can have people come and take care of you here too. Now, I'm very, I never even thought about leaving. It's who I am. What do you see as in terms of the performing arts in a post-COVID world? I still feel like it's going to be another year, maybe two more years before everything is really back and running. And my heart goes out to all these Broadway shows that keep having to shut down. That is the worst. But what do you I, think the entertainment industry is going to be like in a post-COVID world? I don't know. I, I feel so sorry for the young, especially dancers, because your careers are so, for most people, luckily, I had a long career because I was a character man on top of it. But I just think of these people that to lose two, three, four years of your career. And in that time, you have a whole new generation of dancers coming in. I, I just like I had several friends that were, got their first Broadway show and they closed, you know, the first week they were in it. And yeah, you and I know Alexa DeBar, who yeah, I yeah. love so much. Right. Yeah. And she was in West Side Story and it closed. I mean, she will work. But I know that she's been in kind of a holding pattern and my heart goes out to her because she's in these golden prime years right now. Exactly. That's what I'm That's exactly one of the people I was thinking of. So talented, so gorgeous. And but, you know, it closed right after they opened, I guess. Then they never reopened. Yep, I know. I saw it in previews and um, I know she'll work more because oh, yeah, she is so talented. Yeah. You were saying what happens. I hope the whole recording thing doesn't become a the new normal. I know we have to do this. It's one of the reasons I'm not auditioning now. I'm not. I'm not comfortable auditioning for live on a video, and I don't want to spend the money because there are so few roles for someone my age anyway. And the chances are going to it's going to go to somebody that had a TV show or a Tony nomination anyway. Just I've been reading this stuff like. Where casting people say they got 10,000 video submissions. So they only look, yes. people go to all this work and then it's not even looked at. It, they're still just tight, you know, and I, I just hope that 
it's not accepted as a norm once the pandemic has petered out, hopefully. And I think it might because they will fight for that because it makes it a lot easier for them and a lot less work for them and a lot cheaper for them. They don't have to rent studios, all this other stuff. I will. I have no problem auditioning for film or video on video, but I do not want to... Live is a totally different animal. I think you need to be in the room with the people for that to happen. Yeah, I love I love being in the room. I just had uh, Michael Cassara on and he was talking about how things have changed for him as a casting director. We went back and forth over the pros and cons right now because of covid. They're not going back to live auditions. You're lucky that you have the option that you're like, oh, I don't think so. I'll wait it out. And you know why else, Michelle? For the very first time, and this has happened during the pandemic, I don't need the job to identify myself. Oh, my goodness. And do you know how freeing that was? And I, it's been that way. I mean, even just a few years before, it was like if I was a couple months without a job, I would go, I'd be afraid to see people because I would be a failure if I was seeing someone and I wasn't working. Although... I have worked in every year in the past 50 years. I've had some work, most of the time, a great deal of work. But I've never missed a year where I didn't work. And yet I still had that identity problem. So what, how did you, how did you overcome it? This is, oh my goodness, this is like the breakthrough moment of this podcast. How did you get to that place, Roger? I I guess a lot of it was just, well, taking the class online and doing it just for me and realizing that I, I, you know, and vocalizing and only for me, but not, I have to get this job or I have to do this or I have to do that. Being very high. And like I said, I hope I have another job someday. But if I don't, I'm fine, too, because I had a I had a fabulous career. You and- really do and did. Yeah. Well, hearing you say that just warms my heart because that's something I've struggled with for so long. I just spent the week visiting my daughter and I really put my career in the back seat because I wanted my daughter to know that I was a mother first. And I'm I'm happy to say that I now have this independent person who's grown up, has a job apartment, is going to school and is doing very well. And I'm proud. And I'm not saying I did that, you know, but yes, you did <laughs> choices. I made the right choice and I will always be proud of the fact that, yes, I am a performer, but motherhood first and I don't regret that. But even motherhood, you can wrap your identity in that too. Part of me, when when my daughter left and went to college, I had to really say, okay, what do you want to do now? Because a lot of the time that I had spent raising her, I now had back. So it's being just a person is the most challenging thing of all, like just being yourself without performing for everybody. That's the challenge. Well, that's, I guess, too, during this time, I've, I have really utilized my time. I'm not like a person that just sits and does nothing. I get up at like very early, earlier than I ever did, because now I don't worry about having a show at night. (laughs) I used to not like to get up too early thinking of what if I have a show and I need to have my energy. But I, I keep myself, like I said, I have my 
I do my ballet bar. I do at least a half hour stretch, doing some sit-ups, push-ups. I, I, I've been working on my French again, just for me. I spend at least an hour a day on that. And I don't sit in front of the TV. I watch it at night, but late, you know, but that's one of the things that I went, yeah, I can still have a life without being in a show. I love, I really love this conversation. You know, you have always been somebody that I adore and everyone that knows you adores you because you're fun to be with, but you're also solid in terms of when you're working with you, you know that like you're not just in the right place at the right time, but you're just, you're present. You're present and we had so much fun. We did the Goodbye Girl together with Donna McKechnie. And Roger, Donna takes my online class. I'm going to, after we get off the phone, I'm going to send an invitation to you. I know you take your other ballet class, but you're always welcome in mine too. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, you were just... Well, you know, you were talking about being present. That's, I've never understood people that aren't present on stage, that don't take every show as being as important as, it, you know, even if you've done a show for three years, every time you go out there, I, even when I was dancing in Disney on Parade, I remember when you're out there with 65 dancers, I would always say to myself, Somewhere out there, there are people that are watching only me. And that's so I played to those people. And I love that. I've, I've heard people say, oh, they're not looking at me. I'm in the back row. Yes, there's always somebody looking at you. There's always somebody that finds something about you fascinating. Well, this has been a beautiful conversation. Thank you, Roger. And I love you so much. I love you. Thank you. Hey there, Joshua Holloway here. I just wanted to pop in and thank you for listening to another season of the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast. We have a really great time making this show, and we're honored to have amazing listeners like you. Season three is on its way, so keep an eye out. But until then, stay safe, share love, and we'll see you very soon. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Oh,